You're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. And uh, this morning we will continue our series in Psalm 119. Uh, It's called Hope in God's Word. And so we'll be in the unit called Teth, which is verses 65 through 72. I'll tell you up front that this might be a heavy message for some because it's on affliction. And I know some of us in this room have experienced a great amount of affliction, much more than what I have in life thus far. Out of my 31 years, only 10 of those have, have I been a follower of Christ to develop a working theology of suffering. And so I feel a little ill-equipped, but I'm going to preach the text and, and just be faithful to the text at hand and pray for God's word to speak. So understand, I'm approaching this topic as one who has much to learn because many of you are veteran saints who have stood and are continuing to stand in the fire, so to speak. So we thank you for your faithful example. You've taught the church how to bear our crosses with much patience and grace. It's important for us to talk about affliction for a couple reasons. One, to edify and encourage those among us currently going through a valley to stay the course with Christ. And two, for those of us currently on a hilltop to be prepared and ready because there will come a valley to cross when we least expect it. 1 Peter 4 reminds Christians that they can expect afflictions because that's just part of living in a broken world marred by sin. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So Peter is saying that even though fiery trials will come our way, we aren't without hope because our faith rests in a God that is mysteriously grand enough to both allow and sometimes, to to allow broken and sometimes evil circumstances to occur, and in the same stroke, hate the evil that occurred, and grieve over the loss, and work for our healing and growth toward holiness. Some of you have been in what seems like a never-ending valley, and you're tired. I want you to hear me say that it's okay for you to feel that way. I can only imagine how tired it must be. My hope for you this morning is that you would leave here encouraged and refreshed by the Lord to hope and cling all the more to His Word. Let me pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word that never fades, and for your son, the word made flesh, who was afflicted for our transgressions. Even though we don't fully understand the afflictions we face, we thank you for them, for they keep us tethered to you, and I know it's not often enough that we thank you for this, but we know that you are good and you do good, so whatever the means, in your providence, guide and direct us where we need to be. Help us to reflect Christ and mature as your children. And we know it's all for your glory and our good. And for that, we can count it all joy. In Christ's name, amen. In our passage this morning, we find affliction achieving three things for our psalmist. You can jot these down. Restoring, teaching, and keeping. So number one, affliction restores the servant of God back to his word. Number two, affliction teaches the servant God's word. 
And number three, affliction keeps the servant abiding in God's word. Our passage, Teth, verses 65 through 72 says, You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart, I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. And so the key word and title of our unit, teth, means good. The psalmist is overjoyed with the sheer goodness of God which he's been experiencing firsthand. But as you can see from our text, he's experiencing the Lord's goodness in ways you wouldn't ordinarily describe as being good because it's coming in the form of affliction. Affliction can come in various forms such as trials, pains, sufferings, the results of sin, heartaches, weaknesses, losses, and even persecution. And the typical outcome of affliction is that it brings you low. It's humbling to be afflicted. And of course, our natural response to all that is, you know, well, those things sound terrible. How, how could any of that be good? And on the surface level, I'd have to agree, but the things I listed off certainly don't sound good, but we need to swim a little deeper to find out what these afflictions are producing in the psalmist's soul, in his character. And that is faith-filled worship, which is very good. And so last week, if you recall, our psalmist was suffering scorn and contempt from the powerful. People of authority were applying against them, which is a common theme of 119. Elsewhere in the psalm, you will find his soul clinging to the dust. He says his soul is melting away. He's being taunted and threatened. He's been accused of falsehood. And yet, through it all, he's comforted by the promises of God's word. Through all of these afflicting circumstances, the Lord continues to reveal his goodness through his word. And so this week, we find those two themes at play here again. Number one, affliction. And number two, hope in God's word. You see, for the Christian, affliction and hope are not mutually exclusive. They harmoniously fit together for the Lord's desired effect, which is to be holy. We find the same concept in Romans 5, which says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. All right, well, let's get to it. Verse 65 says, You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Now remember, the key word for this unit is good, which is why if you have the NIV, it says, Do good to your servant according to your word. The ESV says you've dealt well because the verse is supposed to be making a statement of God's goodness of what he has already done, not a plea, as the NIV seems to suggest. So God's goodness is not a general benevolence. Rather, it's a goodness in conjunction to his character, which is always demonstrated through his actions throughout his word. And so we'll see that here in a minute. As our psalmist continues... 
verse 66, he says, Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Good judgment here literally means to taste. To taste good judgment is an acquired taste. So due to our sinful nature, it's not natural to have a taste for righteousness until the Spirit of God gets a hold of one's heart. But now, the servant has tasted the goodness of God's Word, and he's craving for more. Remember last week, we saw him longing for God's Word at all times. So here he is again, asking to be taught good judgment and knowledge because he wants to be faithful to God's Word. Since he's Learned from experience that God is good. But how? How did he learn about the Lord's goodness? How has the Lord been good to him? This is going to bewilder some, but verse 67 tells us, by affliction. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. So that's my first point. Affliction restores the servant back to God. Affliction restores the servant back to God, back to his word. Beforehand, when all was easy, comfortable, and safe, the servant went astray. He forgot about God. He didn't think he needed God. He may have thought he was in control of his circumstances. He was a typical prodigal. And similar to Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, who, if you remember, was afflicted through famine... Affliction brought about repentance to this servant as well. Part of what it means to be afflicted is to be humbled, to be brought low, chastened, or corrected. But now the servant says, I keep your word. That's not an arrogant statement. He's not claiming to keep the law perfectly. Only Jesus did that. But he is saying, I now have a desire, a taste, to be faithful to your word. Because I've tasted and seen that you, God, are good. Whereas before, he didn't care. He did what was right in his own eyes. He established and lived by his own laws. He lived by his truth, which now he sees as foolish. Affliction helped open his eyes to the goodness of God and his word of truth. Being humbled will do that. I don't know of a conversion story where the element of being humbled is left out. Not because it's humbling, not just because it's a humbling thing to know, as Tim Keller puts it, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to imagine, and yet at the same time we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared to hope. That certainly is a humbling reminder and is the basis of our salvation. But God also humbles us in tangible ways to get our attention, to shake us up, to wake us up from our slumber, certainly was the case for me. You see, for a full year, I would tag along with my dorm buddies who attended a campus ministry every Thursday evening to listen to a message from the Bible, and then afterwards, I would go off to party nearly every time. It was my pattern. No conviction about that. I thought I was actually doing pretty good going to a religious event. I would check off weekly piety from my list and feel okay about myself. Now, during these visits, visits to this ministry, I ended up dating a girl who was also attending. But of course, she didn't know the gospel either, which is how she ended up with me. And when I was home from college the following summer, she decided to break it off with me while she was on a mission trip to another country. And she said it was because I wasn't a Christian. 
But you see, growing up, I had always thought that I was a Christian, and so in my pride, to prove her wrong, I started reading the Bible and realized, oh, I guess I'm not a Christian. I've never felt the weight of my sin like this before or knew that it separated me from a holy God or that Jesus lived the righteous life I could never live and died the horrific death on the cross that I deserved for my sin or that he rose from the grave for our hope. I didn't know this Jesus portrayed in God's word. But I wanted to. Now I'm sure I'm not the only one in this room who can relate to our text where God uses a relative pain to emotionally and spiritually humble oneself and quite literally bring you face to face with his word. I was convicted and converted by the powerful words of scripture that summer. My dad um, let me know how obsessed I was by poking fun at me, asking me in jest, are you training to become a monk? And you see, that's because I couldn't put the scriptures down. I was captivated by the word of God. God's word was convicting my heart and shaping a new path for my life to follow after Christ. I even began losing old friends. Not on purpose, of course, but my desires were changing and I wasn't interested in entertaining old sins with friends because the Holy Spirit was at work. And as best I knew how, I even began witnessing to these friends of mine. Now at the time, I didn't know I was witnessing. It was so innocent. My evangelism methods weren't complex. I wasn't learned in apologetics. If someone asked me something I didn't know, which was nearly every question, I'd say, I don't know, let me look into that, which I did. I couldn't recite the four spiritual laws or lead anyone down Romans Road, but I could open my mouth and share about the little bit that I did know from what I was reading. I would say things like, you know, I've been reading the Bible some lately. Have you ever read it before? I would tell them what I was learning, tell them about the outrageous things Jesus was, was saying. I would ask them questions to get their opinions about something I read Jesus doing. Even if they didn't have a clue on what I was talking about, I'd still ask just to get their perspective. And now, I didn't know it at the time, but I was witnessing. Unbeknownst to me, I was planting seeds just by asking questions. Sadly, even though I was sincere in my questions, I quit getting phone calls to hang out, and I wouldn't get callbacks. Now, I wasn't naive. I knew what was happening because God's word told me that this would happen. Social pressures can be a form of affliction, which, if you remember, is what we saw last week when the powerful people plotted against the psalmist who was speaking God's word. Okay, so we've seen affliction Bring this wayward servant back to God. That's oftentimes what God uses to draw people to himself. But now some of you may be thinking, well, what if I'm not a prodigal and I'm still experiencing afflicting seasons? What if you know God, you trust God, you're a follower of Christ, so why are you still experiencing these afflictions? That leads us into our second point. Number two, affliction teaches the servant God's word. Affliction teaches the servant God's word. Verse 68, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. God is not arbitrarily good. He is good by his very nature, and his nature is not without activity. He consistently acts within his own goodness, which is why the psalmist isn't bitter 
about his trials. His afflictions are serving a purpose, and he knows it's not meaningless because nothing God does or allows is meaningless. The many forms of affliction, pain, suffering, anguish of body and soul, emotional turmoil, spiritual attack are all received under God's watchful eye and loving heart. Which is certainly true for our psalmist. As this psalm progresses, we find the servant clinging to God's word all the more because of his affliction. And not only that, but he has the discernment to assess the situation and realize, man, you know what? This is for my good. God, keep teaching me. Keep taking me to school. So in his prayer, teach me your statutes. He's saying, go on, God. Keep afflicting me wherever and whenever necessary to teach me your word. The servant is aware that the process of his affliction is the Lord's finest teacher of his goodness. For many, including myself, nothing illustrates this better than marriage. Marriage is hard. Along with the many joys, laughs, and love, there are also a lot of afflictions in the form of hurts, pains, heartaches, sins given and sins received, which are painful. There's a lot of dying to self that must take place, and it's not natural for us to do this. Being selfless doesn't come naturally for us, and so it must be learned. And what better teacher is there than God's Word? What better example do we have in Jesus laying down one's rights for the sake of the other? My wife has told me in marriage that that marriage has been a catalyst for her growth and holiness because she's never been in the Word as much and learned from the Word as much as she has during our five years of marriage. Marriage has driven her to God's Word because I'm like a thorn in her flesh for her sanctification. And I don't know if that's a compliment, but she's welcome. <laughs> if marriage isn't in marriage, there's a lot of dying to self that must be learned. A lot of heartache to walk through, a lot of sins to repent of. This covenant teaches men how to love their bride as Christ loved the church and who gave himself up for her and for women to respect their imperfect husbands. Marriage without doubt has led many of us to God's word to teach us how to live out the tenets of the gospel inside our homes. But regardless if you're married or not, We also do this whenever we pray for a better understanding and knowledge of God and maybe for a closer walk with God. When we pray, Lord, teach me your statutes, as we should, we are often unconsciously praying to share in Christ's sufferings. If I want to know the heart of Christ and have a closer walk with Him, then what better way than to share in His suffering? This was Paul's thought as he says in Philippians 3, I want to know Christ and the power of of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. The school of affliction is an experienced teacher in helping God's children better understand and apply his word. We grow closer to Christ more so whenever we share in the fellowship of his sufferings. Whenever I meet a seriously afflicted Christian, I mean someone who's gone through the ringer with tremendous heartache, or loss, or pain, chronic pain, it's never a surprise to me that they just happen to be very godly and Christ-like in their character. 
It's never a surprise. It's no coincidence they have grown in Christ's likeness through their sufferings. By experiencing the scars and stains of sin in the world, they have become more like Christ, who, if you remember, took upon himself the punishment of our sin. Isaiah 53 says that Jesus was a man of sorrows and of many afflictions. It reads, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our inequities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the inequity of us all. Okay, so we've seen our psalmist stray like a prodigal and be brought back through afflicting times. He's asked the Lord to teach him good judgment and knowledge from his word, which he's been following. But now he's facing another type of, persecu- uh, another type of affliction, which is persecution. Verse 69 says, The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. So the servant is experiencing affliction via persecution. And here's the kicker. It's for staying loyal to God's word. Now you would think that this type of affliction might make the servant a little bitter at God, maybe lash out at God, and sometimes that happens. In frustration, we're all prone to lash out from time to time. God, how could you allow this to happen? For all the ways I've served you, the tithes I give, my energy to serve the church toward making disciples, and you allow this to happen? Why me? Those are all valid questions. It's okay to ask questions and discuss these with God. To lament and cry in his presence, God is compassionately listening and empathizing with what's on your heart. He cares about you, and so talk to him about what's weighing on your heart, because when you do, you begin to understand and and recall that God is good, and he does good. The Holy Spirit will bring that to remembrance. And so we ask him once again to tether our hearts to his word. There's no one else who can sympathize with our weaknesses and afflictions like the Lord can, and there's no one who's more eager to do so. He feels every heartache and pain we go through. He grieves over every loss because he loves wider and deeper than we ever could. He hates sin and evil much more than we do because he is holy and we are not. And like our Isaiah passage says, God's goodness is not without skin in the game. He acts upon his goodness, which is why he went to the cross to die the death of death, and then rose from the grave to confirm his goodness. So point number three, affliction keeps the servant abiding in God's word. Affliction keeps the servant abiding in God's word. For the child of God, affliction reminds her that this is not home. 
When the world is nice to us, we tend to drift into thinking how good it would be to belong to this nice, flattering world, and we get lulled to sleep. John Barrage says, a kick from the world does a, less, does a believer less harm than a kiss. A kiss will make us happy, but a kick will make us holy. And God's word repeatedly tells us that God's after our holiness, first and foremost. The servant understands that to be made holy, to experience a closer walk with Christ, to be transformed into the image of Jesus, he has to experience some trials. Because like I've been saying, because Jesus, our master, did. After all, the Bible never says you might be persecuted or ridiculed or mocked or treated unfairly. God says it will happen, and so you can expect it. Has anyone ever heard the phrase, the safest place to be in the world is within the will of God? Now, I guess that phrase could be true depending upon how you define the word safe. But let's take a look. Google defines safe as protected from or not exposed to danger or risk, not likely to be harmed. And so if that's our definition of safe, then this phrase, which is fairly popular among Christians, isn't true. Because if safety is what we're after, then we need to stop sending missionaries to plant churches in hard places. If safety is our goal, then we need to move out of Grant Beach and make disciples elsewhere. If safety is what we want, then we need to to stop sharing the gospel at all. If safety is our aim, then we need to pull our gospel light, our witness, from dark places. If safety is our target, then we need to not just be in the world, but be counted among the world. Because what we are called to do and be as Christians isn't safe. Especially amongst the world that take offense at the gospel. So no, being in the will of God isn't the safest place to be, but it sure is the only place to be. Jesus in John 15 sums this up well, saying, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master." If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, of course, our cultural saying in 21st century America, for the time being, experiences less weighty persecutions than what many of our brothers and sisters around the world are going through. But nonetheless, we should still get a taste if we're being faithful. It shouldn't surprise me when I hear criticism, when I hear backbiting and gossip in the workplace, When folks say of me, do you really think he believes that stuff? How intolerant. How archaic. How narrow-minded. It says it right here in our passage, the insolent will smear you with lies. So how will you respond? How will you respond when you're overlooked for that promotion you were most qualified to receive simply because of your faith? How will you respond when you're criticized or laughed at for what you believe? How we respond when, just fill in the blank. My hope is that you will respond like the psalmist who says, but with my whole heart, I keep your precepts. My hope is that 
the insolent mockers would continue to hear from your lips with much patience and grace the salvific hope that is in you. John Piper says, God means for the body of Christ, the church, to experience some of the suffering Jesus experienced so that when we proclaim the cross as the way to life, people will see the marks of the cross in us and feel the love of the cross from us. And if their hearts remain unfeeling like fat, which is what we see here, verse 70, their heart is unfeeling like fat, then it is my hope that your heart will remain delighted in God's law like the psalmist says. But I delight in your law. So what is it that you find so delightful about God? Is it His Word? Is it His salvation? His attributes? His character? His promises? Paul says then to think or to meditate on such things. Philippians 4 says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think or meditate on such things. And what is more true, what is more noble, what is more pure, what is more lovely and praiseworthy than God himself? Absolutely nothing. And so this is how God's word becomes our delight. The heart cannot love and delight in what the mind does not know. The mind must know God's word to keep the heart from becoming unfeeling like fat, which described the insolent and proud. The psalmist knows what it's like to have a seared conscience and a calloused heart. He knows what it's like to have a heart that is unfeeling because it's how he lived before affliction came. However, God's people must be careful as well. Sin is still capable of hardening even regenerated hearts. When you quench the Spirit, ignore His convictings and counsel, and continue to excuse your sin, oh, it's just a little sin, I'm not hurting anyone, I won't be found out, then brother, sister, your heart is already well on its way to numbness. The great reformer Martin Luther said, I never knew the meaning of God's word until I came into affliction. I have always found it to be one of my best schoolmasters. If a softness of heart has been brought to you by the Lord's school of affliction, then you can relate when the psalmist rejoices in verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. And this concept right here is unfathomable to the unbeliever. To count affliction as good? An unbeliever can only count trials and tribulations as grief and despair, as bad luck or circumstance. He can't count his trials and afflictions as good like the believer can. The concept's too foreign. An unbeliever's reaction to affliction is, this can't be good because it sure doesn't feel good. And in some respects, he may be right. He's experiencing the marks of living in a sinful world with a sinful nature, which can certainly be cruel, unjust, mean, and downright evil. But what he must understand is that God is the redeemer and reconciler of all the things he is experiencing. 
all pain, all heartache, all sorrow, all brokenness, including the brokenness of his sinful heart. And if he could just put his experiences into a proper framework, a worldview that was able to make sense of his experiences, well then he too would be able to declare with the psalmist, it is good for me that I was afflicted. It was painful and hard for sure, but altogether good because I now know that my present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in Christ Jesus. Our trials as Christians point us to a Father who will take our hand and walk us through the pains of life. And who better than the one who's gone before us? Jesus, the Word made flesh. The one who can sympathize with every weakness. The one who knew no sin but became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. C.S. Lewis, after the death of his wife, said, God was not trying an experiment on my faith and love in order to find out its quality. He knew it already. It was I who didn't. He always knew that my temple was a house of cards. His only way of making me realize the fact was to knock it down. Affliction helps us to realize the state of our souls. Without affliction, discipleship has a tendency to remain shallow and untested. Even Jesus himself, although he never sinned, the author of Hebrews tells us that he learned obedience through what he suffered. And although our sufferings are much lighter in comparison to his, they're still not meaningless. Just take a look at our psalmist's example. Our psalmist is more loyal to God's word than ever before. He delights in it and he walks in its counsel. He even wraps this unit up by saying in verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. So this is a profound truth. No man or woman will learn to love their Bible as much as they should until God brings affliction. 